Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. I was joined today by the amazing and wonderful Dr. Stephanie Estima, facilitating listeners' questions. She joined me most recently on episode 272, where we dove into women's health, and she had previously joined me on episode 123. Dr. Estima is an exceptionally well-read and well-versed clinician. She is an expert on female metabolism and body composition and the author of the incredible resource called The Betty Body, and the host of a podcast called The Better Podcast, of which I've had the honor of being a guest myself. She is absolutely one of the most aligned voices in the health and wellness space with me. And today we facilitated conversations from both of our communities, including questions on how to navigate balancing hormones while breastfeeding and not getting sufficient sleep, issues related to preconception and how to properly track your cycle, the best contraceptives for younger women, ways to support detoxification, as well as fibrocystic breasts, navigating autoimmune conditions and fibromyalgia, and how to determine how hard to push your workouts. Lots of questions related to weight training, especially around your cycle, favorite pre-workouts, favorite supplements, especially for perimenopause and menopause, hormesis, and so much more. There's no question that Dr. Estima is a very popular podcast guest, and I know you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome back, Dr. Estima. Always a pleasure to have you on and another AMA, a hotly requested AMA episode number two for the year. Well, I am just thrilled to be back with you, my friend. And I think we're going to have, you know, just looking at some of the questions we were just talking about in the pre-chat, we're going to have some great conversation today and serving our communities in terms of all the drive, like the pressing questions that everybody wants to know about pregnancy and weight training and nutrition and all the things. So I think I'm looking forward to our conversation today too. Absolutely. So this is a question that came in from Martina. It's a question about the lack of sleep during breastfeeding. And boy, do I remember those days and those years. I know sleeping is fundamental to hormone health, but I'm still breastfeeding a lot during the night. Is there anything I can do to help stabilize my hormones? The baby is 20 months old. I still don't have my period back. Lots of nuance there. Lots of nuance there. Yeah. So first of all, congratulations on your 20 month old. I remember those days as well. My, let's see, I'm trying my first child, I breastfed him. We were about 18, 19 months and then he started weaning. And then my second child we breastfed, it was well over three years. So I know exactly. And then he did not want to end. Like if he could still, you know, he's like 10 right now. And like, if he could still do it, like he, he might exercise that option. So I know where she is in terms of like the waking up overnight, maybe the baby had a nightmare or they're even just, you know, they're just establishing their own circadian rhythm still like 20 months is still quite young for them to have like a regular sort of sleep wake cycle. So the first thing I'll say is I don't have a great answer here in terms of how can you sleep soundly through the night? I don't think at this point in the game, 
from the women that I've, you know, my own experience, the women that I've talked to, I don't think that you're going to sleep through the night, nor should you expect that you or your baby should either. Something to consider though, in terms of getting the amount of sleep that you need would be to consider more of like a biphasic sleep schedule, right? So in other words, embracing the siesta, you know, like the afternoon nap, right? So when your baby naps, the temptation is to cook, clean, get ahead of something. But what you probably should be doing if you're not already doing it is to lay down either with your baby or if the baby's sleeping in a crib or something for you to sleep down and like to go down and sleep and have a nap there. There is some, especially for new mothers, and I would classify her still as a new mother with a 20-month-old, that that biphasic, like that two times in the day that you're sleeping. So one overnight, albeit disrupted, and then a second time can be a way for you to make up that sleep debt that you may be accruing, and it'll help you function. The only you know caveat I would say is... If you're sleeping too late in the afternoon, like typically after 4 p.m., if you're starting to take nap, like, but usually 20 months, like they're usually, they need a nap around like, you know, noon, one, two o'clock, like you're probably going to go down at the right time. But I would say that if you're feeling very drowsy, let's say at four or five o'clock, try to push that to your bedtime. Like maybe you go to bed that evening at 8.30 or nine with the baby. And then, you know, however long, like maybe you're up at one or two breastfeeding the baby, but then you know that you're going to get another sleep session sometime in the early afternoon when baby goes down for his or her afternoon nap. I think that's really valuable information. I will disclose that I breastfed both my boys for a year and then they weaned and bit and did all sorts of things that I was like, okay, well, they cut their teeth on my nipples. Yes, they did. Yes. Oh, yes. Trying to explain to my husband that that was like pain I had never experienced before. And he kind of looked at me like he couldn't understand. So both my kids, my youngest, and I acknowledge every baby's different. This is not applicable to every child. I had one that started sleeping through the nights at four months, another at six months. So this wasn't something that I had experienced, but I do know, and I do agree with you that sleep when babies sleep. So if your baby is still waking up at night, you know, whether it's for self-soothing behavior or, you know, just habit, you know, finding a way for you to get a little bit of rest during the day. And my mother used to say sleep when baby sleeps. And of course, the to-do list starts to run in our minds. And next thing we know, they've woken up from a nap and then we're really chronically tired. The other thing is it's not at all unusual while breastfeeding for women not to get their menstrual cycle. I think I went two solid years without a period. I remember thinking that was pretty awesome. Yeah, pretty awesome not to have to worry about that. But, you know, certainly something that I wouldn't be overtly concerned if you're still breastfeeding, you know, if you're a thinner female, I think a lot of the thinner females may go a longer period of time without having a menstrual cycle. But just understanding that doesn't in and of itself, I know this wasn't the question, that doesn't in and of itself mean that you can't get pregnant, like just don't assume because you're not getting your period that may not play a role. But I would say give yourself some grace try to rest when your baby rests. It may be that it's become a habit that he or she is waking up. And so just trying to determine, is it because they're, you know, do they need an extra feeding before they go to bed? What's going on? Are they self-soothing? They're just fussy in the middle of the night and that helps them kind of get settled again. But it's such a beautiful time in our lives to be able to bond with our children. I don't ever want to discourage that or let that be the message. If your baby's still interested in breastfeeding, I would just continue until you both decide that it's the time for you both to end that part of your relationship. 
Yeah, I still, I mean, not that I miss it anymore. Like my children are 13 and 11 now, but it was <laughs> such a, spe- you know, I wouldn't be doing it, it now, but I would say it's such a special, mm-hmm. precious time. And for women who are new, like that is the work, right? That is our job at that point is mothering, like being fully attentive, like our neurology, our physiology is all directed towards the baby. So you can lean into that. And just enjoy it. I know she's probably heard this before, but you know, the days are long, but the years are really short and you will blink and your children will be 13 and 11 as mine are now. And you're like, you know, and your iPhone sometimes will throw up like, remember when, and you know, like 10 years ago, and you're like, how was that 10 years ago? So yeah, I would just say lean into it. Don't worry so much about optimizing your sleep. Like, yes, it's important. Yes. It's a recovery tool. Yes. It's helpful for balance your hormones. And there will be a time when your baby can sleep through the night. And there's also, you know, there's growth spurts and regression, right? Like there's times like you were saying, you know, your baby slept through at four months and then six months, you know, my babies would do that for, let's say a a couple weeks. And I'd be like, great new routine. Got it. And then there would be some developmental change that they would, they would be approaching and things would get all messed up again. So just have the flexibility of thinking to know that you are just going to be constantly in flux right now until you and the baby decide that you're not going to be breastfeeding anymore. And that the baby establishes like a pretty solid circadian sort of schedule in terms of like sleep wake cycles. And it's okay for you not to be doing perfect sleep. I wrote about this actually in my book, like more, you know, I was at the time when I was writing the book, um, there was a lot of sort of prominent podcasters and online, they were all men. And they were like, this is the perfect morning routine. And I was like, hi, (laughs) you know what the morning routine is for me? My child waking me up. That's my morning routine. Like it was my toddler kind of toddling into my bed and being like, mommy, you know, or coming in for a feeding or whatever it was. So don't worry about the perfect sleep schedule. Don't worry, like don't have any anxiety around that. Just do what you can right now, because that is your primary role right now as a new mom. Yeah. And there's a season and a reason. Like I'm at the stage where I have one getting ready to leave the nest at the end of the spring of next year, he's going to head off to college. And so I can assure you that what we deal with now at this stage is these kids will sleep all day if you let them on the weekend because they stay up. They're like night owls. Now they stay up really late. They don't get enough sleep during the week. Then on the weekend, they try to, to catch up. And so with each season as a parent, we just try to, it's like, we're trying to kind of fluctuate around like their needs and where they are developmentally and growth and everything else. So such a great question. The next one is about preconception. What are recommended tests to obtain for optimizing fertility? The best tests for optimizing fertility? Mm-hmm. Well, first I would say track your cycle. So I am a big fan in terms of, you know, you are an advocate of this as well in terms of understanding your own unique rhythm. So the first thing is tracking your cycle. It can be on an app. It can be on an Excel spreadsheet, Google sheet, whatever. I would also be tracking. I'm a big fan of, I know there's a question around contraception. I'm a, and so this is kind of related to that. I'm a big fan of like fertility awareness method or FAM. And part of that in terms of getting, that's going to serve you for as a contraceptive, if you don't want to get pregnant. And if you do want to get pregnant, understanding your cervical mucus, which is 
it's not just sort of like gunk in your underwear. It's actually telling, it's giving you clues and signs in terms of where your estrogen levels are at. Are you fertile right now? And we'll talk about what that might look like in a moment, but FAM or fertility awareness method, you're tracking a couple of things. One is the cervical mucus, as I mentioned, your basal body temperature. So your temperature will change over the course of your cycle. And that can indicate ovulation. You'll often see ovulation. You'll see a bit of a spike in your basal body temperature. So for, it might be like 0.5 to even like one degree Fahrenheit. If you're working in Celsius, it might be 0.2 to 0.5 degrees Celsius. Like you may see if you're wearing an aura ring as I am right now, if you're watching this on video, you're going to get knocked on your readiness score because you're going to be warmer. You know, it's gonna be like, oh, you were warm last night. And it's like, yeah, I'm ovulating, you know? And then the other thing, this might require a little bit more internal exam or self-internal exam is like the cervical position, right? So when we are ovulating or ready to receive, let's say sperm, the opening of the cervix will be softer versus when we are infertile or not ready to receive the sperm, your cervix, the tip of the cervix, let's say, or what you can sort of feel internally is going to feel quite hard. It might even almost feel like almost like the tip of your nose. It might feel like a little bit like there's a resistance there, but when you're ovulating, that softens up and it allows for the passage a bit more open and a bit more effaced. So you're allowing for sperm to sort of pass through. So that's sort of fam in a nutshell. That would be what I would do first was really understand your own cervical mucus pattern, your own basal body temperature pattern. I'll be doing internal examinations to kind of get to know your cervix because none of us do. I remember once I had put a post up about cervical mucus and people were, it was shocking to people. It's like, well, this is what we do. Like this is, you know, when we see estrogen rising. So I'll sort of answer this question comprehensively as we see estrogen rising in the follicular phase. So after bleed week stops, we're going to start to see a rise in estrogen that's going to coincide with more wetness, right? So you're going to see in your underwear, you might see more slipperiness, more almost clear discharge. And then as you're getting closer to ovulation, that discharge is going to start to look more opaque, a bit more white. Some people will call it like lotion or even like egg whitey, like an egg white almost consistency. If you were to put it in between your fingers, as I have, <laughs> you might find that you can sort of stretch it. It has a little bit of like malleability to it. The last day where you see that kind of gooey stretchiness, that opaque presentation is when you are ovulating. So the next day you're going to start to see a marked change in the mucus where it's not going to be as egg whitey. It's not going to be as slippery anymore. It's almost, you're going to sort of move into like almost like a bit of a dry because estrogen falls off after we ovulate, estrogen comes down. So you're going to see the same corresponding lack of wetness, let's say in your underwear. So that would be the best way for you to be thinking about fertility, at least for the first year of trying. If you are trying for a year, you know, even over six months, then I would start looking at, I would actually get him tested and you tested. So if it's Oftentimes when we look at fertility, we typically tend to blame the woman first. <laughs> we tend to be like, oh, there must be something wrong with her. So let's just check all of her stuff. So you can totally get your hormones checked. You can look at AMH, you can look at FSH, you can look at your all your sex hormones. And I would also get his sperm checked as well. So we are looking at count, like how much let's say parts per million or how much sperm we have in one ejaculate. And then you also want to be looking for the quality of the sperm as well. So 
you know, a gluttonation, like there's different sort of presentations of sperm. Like you have like the healthy sperm that we think about with the single head and the single tail. And then you see variations. Sometimes you see a double headed sperm. Sometimes you see sperm without a flagellum. Like you, you see all of these different kind of mutations, we'll say. So we want to look at sperm count, which is a really big problem. Dr. Shauna Swan, I had her on the show. She was talking about sperm decline over the last, I think it was 50 years. I think the last they were looking at from the 1960s or maybe actually, maybe later, maybe the 1970s to like the last time they looked was like maybe 2010 and they it had decreased by more than 50%. So if there's a problem with fertility, it can be coming from the man or it can be coming from the woman or both, right? So we just want to look at both. Oftentimes there is a tendency to look at the female first, but it's very easy to evaluate male sperm count as well. So I would just put that into the mix initially too. Love that explanation. So thorough. And, you know, when we're thinking about infradian rhythms or internal rhythms that we have over a 28, 30 day cycle, it's so helpful to be aware of what's going on in our bodies. Like I was just talking to a client who's in her fifties and she said, no one ever told me what to expect at any stage of my life. We were just kind of handed off oral contraceptives sent on our merry, happy way. And then years later, you're realizing, oh, I've been so disconnected from the normal physiologic rhythms of the body. And so, you know, I think that cycle tracking, checking your basal body temperature, looking at cervical mucus, and even if you don't feel 100% comfortable looking at your cervical mucus, just acknowledging there's changes throughout your cycle is so helpful and beneficial. The other thing that I would say is for me personally... I don't know how much I've talked about this on the podcast, but this is how I knew I wasn't ovulating. When I was in my early 30s, when my husband and I got married, I had no idea that I was thin phenotype PCOS. No idea. And it was Mm. only because I brought in all these charts. Back then, you didn't put them in an app that was preceding the app stage of life. But showing them to my GYN, and the first thing she said is, you have a luteal phase defect. You don't have enough progesterone. I need to refer you on to someone. And that was, you know, kind of started our infertility journey. But the acknowledgement of if I had not done that basic assessment for a couple months, we would not have been able to objectively look at the information and say, well, I'm not even ovulating. No wonder why I'm not getting pregnant. So you don't necessarily have to use all the high level tech to start with. Like this kind of observational data can be very helpful. And as Stephanie indicated, the lab work can complement and also help identify if there are any issues. What we find now is that men in particular, either from insulin resistance or endocrine mimicking chemical exposure, and we have so much of it, that can plummet sperm counts for men. So you could look healthy on the outside and not either have a healthy, vibrant sperm count or your motility may be poor, or you may have, as you mentioned, the double-headed sperm with a lack of flagella, you might have a lot of defects in the sperm themselves. So knowledge is power. Most people don't have any issues getting pregnant. That's not the why I'm sharing this. I'm just sharing that from someone who otherwise was pretty healthy, being on oral contraceptives for so many years had disconnected me from those internal rhythms of my body. And it took a bit of time for things to start working and, and being optimized. So such a great question. I would say knowledge is power you know, do the low tech stuff first, get the testing done, talk to your clinician, make sure that they're on board with what you want to have happen. But more often than not, I find most women don't have any trouble getting pregnant, thankfully. Yeah. 
And then just enjoy the other thing I'll just say is like, just enjoy the process of trying to get pregnant. Like it's such a wonderful, like at least for me, you know, I was raised Catholic. So it was like, you cannot get pregnant. Like that is the goal of your, you know, existence as a woman, (laughs) you know, you cannot get pregnant. So it was almost like backwards land when me and my husband at the time, we were like, all right, we're going to try for a baby. And it was so... I mean, you know, it's always like, oh my gosh, like I'm a good girl. Like, you know, I don't get pregnant, but then it's like, no, this is what I want to do. I want to get pregnant. So just like lean into that, have fun with your partner. Don't worry too much about if you don't get pregnant one time. Like I remember for, at least for me, I'll just share my own experience. It's like when I wanted babies, it was like a switch. It was like, I went from not wanting them. And then all of a sudden I was noticing all of the babies in this carriages and the strollers. And I would see the babies at the park. And I was the weird person in the park, like watching the babies play. And I was like, okay, I need one of these right now. And I was, you know, after, you know, we had been together, I was like doing handstands and I was doing all the things, not scientifically validated technique, just for the record. But I was like, I have to get pregnant right now. And I, it was very easy for me to get pregnant. So I can understand the because I was like, I need a child and I need a child right now. Like it was just something switched in my biological clock. Like I need the child and I need to get pregnant right now. So I can understand the angst. You know, if someone's trying to get pregnant, they're not. And they have that same feeling maybe that I experienced. Like I want a child, like I want it. Why is it not happening? I would just encourage you as much as you can to try and enjoy the process because two stressed out individuals that are like looking at their clock and they're like, okay, we got 12 hours, honey. Like that's, it can work. And, you know, I would just say as as much as you can, it's not necessarily about the destination as much as it is about the journey together that you're taking with your partner. So that's, I would just throw that in. It's not related to the, it's sort of related to the question. She didn't ask it, but I'm I'm just throwing in my own two cents there. I think for anyone that's listening, that maybe your fertility journey was longer than others, just knowing that, you know, even though we did use some reproductive technology, it was fairly low tech. And I was so grateful when we got pregnant with my oldest and then we got pregnant with my youngest. And I remember saying, had it been an easier process, we might've had more children, but we just felt so grateful and blessed that we had two healthy yeah. kids that we just said, okay, we're going to take we're a good. break and reassess things. Yeah. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs 
in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beanminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beanminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. The next question is about what is the best contraceptive for younger women? We already kind of addressed some of her other questions. What do you feel like is your favorite contraceptive for younger women? You know, these are individuals that really do need the benefit of having free choice over when they choose to become pregnant. And there's so many options that are out there. Obviously, I think you and I are very aligned in terms of where our preferences are. Yeah. But ultimately finding the best option that works for you and your lifestyle. Yeah. So I think... Like many things, I think you have to experiment with a couple of different verticals and see what works for you. If you were asking me the question, I would say start with the fertility awareness method again, because again, I'll come back to my Catholic upbringing. I used to think that you could get pregnant by going into a pool. Like I used to think you could get pregnant anytime, anywhere. And actually the science does not support that theory. And I don't even know where I got that from, but I, this is not just a, I'm just not knocking on the Catholic church. I know that there's many sort of religions that sort of talk about this idea of like waiting until you're married and all of that, but you are infertile most of the month. This is something that I think most, I mean, certainly there's outliers. Of course you can get pregnant, you know, potentially there's been women who've gotten pregnant on, you know, during their period or even in their luteal phase or what have you. But for 
the majority of women for most of their lives, most of your cycle, you it is impossible to get pregnant. There's about a five to seven day window in your cycle where you can become pregnant. And that is of course around ovulation. So when you release the egg, the egg, depending on your age, will be alive for somewhere you know, if you're older, it's going to be the egg is going to be less viable for a shorter amount of time. Like it can be 18 hours, 24 hours. If you're younger, the egg will last maybe up to 48 hours. So there's a day or two, let's say 24 to 48 hours where the egg is viable. And if you've had penetrative sex where there's ejaculate in the days leading up to that ovulation, of course, the sperm you know, and this is again, how much I have reverence for reproduction and the reproduction and the propagation of the species is that the sperm can actually live for up to five to seven days, kind of in and around, you know, in and around ovulation. So if you've had sex in let's say the five days or to even the week prior to you ovulating, you can technically still get pregnant because there can be sperm in and around the area that are waiting to penetrate the egg. So I always like, technically it's like a two day, you know, you're sort of at the maximum, like two days where you're fertile, but if you've had penetrative sex in about the week or so leading up to ovulation, you can become pregnant because that sperm will continue to live for that week. So other than that though, there's three weeks like outside of that window where you are infertile. So I would always at least for me, I would start with FAM. I would start with the fertility awareness method, knowing my cycle, knowing my rhythm, knowing my mucus, my basal body temperature. And then if I'm wanting not to get pregnant, I would be avoiding penetrative sex in week two. It's around week two of the cycle. So at, at the cessation of bleed week up until ovulation, I would sort of stay away from penetration. And there's lots of other fun things that you can do with your partner other than penetrative sex in that time. And then you can rest assured that after you've ovulated about two days or so, depending on your age, after you've ovulated, you're pretty much not able to get pregnant. However, there are many other, I know you've talked about the birth control pill, the many different types of contraceptives. So there's oral contraceptives, there's hormonal, there's mechanical, right? We have the Mirena, we have the copper IUD. There's many other ways that you can go about it. I think that my only caveat there is that you really do understand some of the potential side effects. And what we see over and over again, I know you've talked about this. I see this all the time in my community is that women are not communicated. There's not informed consent. It's like, Hey, just take this low dose estrogen. Let's just take this low dose, very safe birth control pill. And nobody talks about the length of time that you might be on it. You know, to your, you know, you talked about your experience about the length of time that you were on the birth control pill potentially affecting that brain ovarian access where that communication that's established between the brain and your, your reproductive system is essentially cut off. So I would say you can certainly explore hormonal contraceptives and I would probably link out to some of the guests and the topics that you've had on previous podcasts where you've talked about some of the side effects that you're probably not going to get that conversation likely in your doctor's office unless they are someone who you know, practices functional medicine or is aware of this uh, or the side effects themselves and are willing to like take the time to communicate them to you. So that would be that. And then the only other thing I'll say is copper IUD, at least my, I've never used IUD, but for the women that I've counseled and just in my community, it's like hit or miss. Like it's either the best thing since sliced bread, it's the best or it's awful. People get headaches and they're nauseous. And so you, it's sort of this 
you kind of have to try it to see if it's going to work for you and have a good working relationship with your PCP to be able to communicate to them. These are the symptoms that I'm having. This is what's new. This is what's coming up. Can we modify the dose or the mechanism for the contraceptive? I think you bring up so many good points. And a great deal of this is women oftentimes get gaslit when they're trying to figure out and navigate contraception. So There is no judgment. If you choose to take oral contraceptives, I did a great podcast with Dr. Felice Gersh, where she talks about some of the, Mm -hmm. she's so lovely, some of the side effects and concerns around that. But for some people, they need to take it and forget it and be done with it and then move on. You know, if you're not, if you want to have a set it and forget it kind of mechanism, I think an IUD is certainly a nice option. And I would probably lean into the copper. And I would agree with you for as many women as have found that a copper IUD has been super helpful and low symptoms. I've had just as many that have had weight gain, headaches, bloating, cramping, pain with insertion. Anna Kabeca was talking about on our most recent podcast together. She said, you know, there's no reason why women can't get, you know, lidocaine prior to the insertion of an IUD, like no one should have pain because she said she actually had quite a bit of pain with her IUD insertion years ago. And then if you're interested in in looking at apps and cervical mucus and checking your basal body temperature, I mean, it runs the gamut. And so there's no right or wrong. It's what is going to be most effective for you at the stage of life that you're in. And I find that a lot of younger women want to have a set it and forget it kind of methodology. Yeah. Like they're like, I don't want to worry about the chance of pregnancy, maybe in a couple of years, I might think more thoughtfully and I'm using their words, not mine. It's not pejorative. Think more thoughtfully about what other options are available to me. But the options surrounding contraception, more often than not, there's not enough informed consent. So people don't fully understand all the ramifications. And I'll just plug this in here. If you are a perimenopausal or menopausal female, this is not HRT. I cannot tell you how many women will say, my doctor finally put me on HRT and they'll tell me what they're on. And I'm like, that's actually an oral contraceptive. Yeah. And they're stunned. So acknowledging things have their place, but finding what works best for you and making sure that you've been fully informed about all the side effects, all the implications. And if you're on long-term oral contraceptives, like I was, because back 20, 30 years ago, that's just what they did help people understand that when you go off, you may not automatically get your period back. Yeah, That was certainly my experience. And I know Jolene Brighton talks quite a bit about this, about that disconnection between the hypothalamus ovarian access when you go off of oral contraceptives. It does not per se just come back online. It's almost like you reboot your computer and you expect the computer to start working automatically. That may not be the case. Well said. Okay, moving on. We are going to talk about a topic that I know both of us love discussing detoxification. And this is a question from Anna. What are some of the ways to detox the body besides exercise and sauna? This is a good question. I saw this come in. I think so obviously when we're thinking about, so exercise and sauna, the primary way that they're helping to amplify detoxification is sweating, right? So getting rid of toxins via like there's many amongtry glands, the sweat, uh, the skin uh, is one of them. And just generally detoxification, just for our listeners, obviously, this is like where we take toxins and we eliminate them, right? So we can upregulate our detoxification pathways by there's a couple of different ways. So consuming more green leafy vegetables, so you can do like a nutritional, uh, you can amplify like detoxification primarily happens in the liver, 
there are other areas, but the liver is one of the major sources or major centers for detoxification and green leafy vegetables. And I know you're smiling because you're like, yep, this is what I talk about all the time. I know. And I know that you do. So, you know, methane and sulforaphanes, these are compounds that are found in those green leafy vegetables are going to help to amplify different steps of the detoxification process. So green leafy vegetables. So what are those? Those are like the kales. Those are the broccolis. Those are anything that smells like, you know, if you leave broccoli or Brussels sprouts like in the fridge and it starts smelling like kind of sulfur, like the almost sort of smells like eggs, like, you Mm -hmm. know, that's the sulforaphane, right? So broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, arugula, I said kale, like, you know, anything that's sort of green and leafy uh, usually is going to have a high concentration of those two compounds, the DIM, the methane, and the sulforaphane. You can also supplement. I personally, it's one of our, the sponsors of our show, like Athletic Greens is something that I take every day because I don't, in, you know, the vein of transparency and honesty, I don't often get as much greens as I would like. So I sort of take AG1 in the morning. And then of course I have my, I love, like I make a really awesome Brussels sprout, like a uh, grilled or sauteed Brussels sprout in the saute pan. And I'll do cheese and broccoli soup. And like, I get greens, but just as sort of an insurance policy, I'll take a green supplement. You can also supplement with dim, like you, there's dim supplementation that you can do. And I think that this woman's question was also, she said that she had fibrocystic breasts. Was that right? Yeah. So this, uh, the second half of her question was, dense breast tissue. She said, I did the depo shot for seven years and was told that contributed to it. I was advised to do a mammogram with ultrasound every six months. Holy cow, which I will not do the mammogram that frequently. Yeah. Agree on that. So I'll say that I also, so fibrocystic or the dense breast that she's talking about is also usually a sign of estrogen dominance. So I had that for many, many years where my breasts were kind of always a bit lumpy. Um, Part of that is like poor detoxification. So green leafy vegetables every day really helps with that. Obviously drinking more water is going to help you flush out toxins. And then bowel movements, right? Like having a bowel movement on the daily. I would say that when you're looking for, again, quality of the stool is important. So if the stool was hard to pass, right? So if you were straining on the toilet, it had a long transit time, like it actually took a long time, like you were on the toilet for five, 10 minutes, you know, trying to pass the bowel movement, that's likely problematic. And then also looking at the stool itself. So, you know, like one sort of long piece is ideal if it's broken up into sort of smaller, harder round balls, let's say that might be a sign of dehydration, might be a sign of lack of fiber in the diet as well. So including like the green leafy vegetables, one of the nice things is you sort of get a double bang. So you get all those compounds we were talking about and you get a lot of fiber. So fiber, as you're consuming it, as you know, it attracts water to the stool that's forming in the intestinal as it's passing through the intestines, softens the stool as well. So if you have sort of these round, I call them like little rabbit poos, you know, if you've ever had like a rabbit in your backyard and you go and you're like, oh my God, there's these little round little (laughs) presents that they've left us. If you're seeing that, let's say in the toilet bowl, it's either lack of fiber, lack of water, usually both. So increasing fiber intake, increasing water intake is also really going to help. And those will help the dense breast tissue because you're going to be helping with estrogen detoxification, like estrogen is 
uh, again, processed by the liver, this like the process of detoxification, we are also metabolizing our estrogens that way. And so if you are someone like me, who tends to left to her own devices will produce like some of the sort of downstream like metabolites of estrogen. I tend to produce sort of the quinone damaging, like DNA damaging. Like I tend to go down the pathway. It's called 4-OH or 4-hydroxyestradiol or estrone. If you are taking green leafy or the dim actually helps you sort of jump pathways to more of the protective pathway, that 2-OH pathway that will help with the dense breasts. So I've sort of taken my breasts from sort of being lumpy, masses to like relatively soft. I will do a you know breast check usually the first day or two that I get my period. And I used to, you know, I would be kind of checking and it was just a lumpy mess and not to be too much TMI here, but whatever. And uh, now they're just soft. There's not a lot of, there's none of those, that lumpy bumpiness that used to be there. In terms of the mammo every six months, God damn it. That's a lot. I feel like I hate that frequency. I actually, I just, I'm not a big fan of, I'm going to get so much blowback for this, but I don't like mammals generally. I feel like, especially I'm a small breasted woman, right? I am like the president of the itty bitty titty committee, right? So like to take my breasts and to flatten it, everything is getting pulled off of my body. And I'm sure it's the same for our beautiful, you know, well-endowed sisters as well. But I just think about what the hell is happening to the tissue as it's being pancaked like that like you're bursting cells, you are completely deranging the material, like the cysts are being, like everything is sort of being compressed mechanically. So I wonder, you know, what the long-term effects of that is. And then, you know, when you sort of couple that with some of the literature that I've looked at in terms of mammograms being a pretty poor predictor of changes in the breast tissue, like they can usually see something once it's been sitting in the tissue, it's something like eight to 10 years. So if you've had some small mass or some, you know, change in tissue quality in the breast, a mammogram is going to pick that up relatively late. So that being, I don't like mammograms. I'm sure someone's going to come after me for saying that, but it's just the truth. I don't like them. That's interesting. I I had Dr. Jen Simmons, who's a breast cancer surgeon coming Mm -hmm. on and talking about, she doesn't like mammograms. She thinks that they tend to overdiagnose. Yeah. There's a lot of false positives. A lot of false positives. A lot of women that go through a lot of stress and duress. And she's actually an advocate of some new technology. It's ultrasonic technology that is as diagnostic Mm -hmm. as an MRI without the radiation. And so she's looking to bring that technology across the United States. Right now, she's based out of Philadelphia, but they are working on, because as you can imagine, uh, radiology centers don't want their cash cow to be and to be it's impacted. profitable. And so it's a, they, yeah, yes, yeah. they are making mm-hmm. sure that it's hard to bring this technology to market in a diffuse manner. I know myself, I get mammograms like every three years, I kind of go along with the European guidelines that are mm-hmm. less frequent. But I agree with you that we have a tendency to over expose patients to rate to radiology, radiation rather, and that in and of itself can create a lot of problems. But I love how you kind of synopsized all those wonderful things. And for anyone that's listening, if you're not familiar with the Dutch hormone test, it looks at dried urine oh. and saliva you can get a really nice picture of how your estrogen metabolism is. And so for me, you know, looking at those different pathways that we can break down estrogen, that can be very insightful about 
you know, do you need to do a little extra to help phase one or phase two liver detoxification? Obviously, this podcast is we're doing AMA questions. So I'm trying to keep things really brief, but some people need DIM to help with uh, pushing the estrogen down that, that beneficial 2OH pathway. Some people need phase two support and they might need things like calcium deglucurate. I'm one of them because I methylate really poorly. And that's a genetic thing that I have that I was born with. I always say my, my parents gave me a lot of good things. That's one of those things that requires genes were not one of them. Yes, exactly. I was like, you know, those are one of those things I have to work extra on. But I'm the same. I'm this. I have very poor methylation pathways as well. Yeah. See, Mm -hmm. we have so many similarities. So I can't even. I can't even. If I go to my naturopath, there's a naturopath around the corner. She does IV therapy, and once she gave me methylated. What was it? I think it's like methylated B vitamins, and I just had the wickedest headache. And I said to her afterwards, I'm like, I don't think I can ever do that again. And it was like methylated with some glutathione and everything was methylated. And I just had the worst headache because my relay system, like the process of moving the methyl group along the pathway is so slow that there was just this big backlog with the IV therapy, all the methylation, all the methylated B, the methylated this, methylated that. My body didn't, it was just too much for it. So everything was sort of backing up. I had the worst headache. So Uh Yeah, never a fun thing to go through. Okay, we're going to pivot because we have a lot of weight training questions. And I just want to quickly get some through some of these perimenopause questions. Yeah, in perimenopause, I have Hashimoto's and fibromyalgia. I find if I push too hard in the weight room, the next day, I feel like crap. How hard should we push it to still gain muscle but not overdo it? Such a good question. This is from Leandra. Well, Leandra, this is a fantastic question and a very common one as well. So the guiding principle, so she has an autoimmune condition, right? So she has Hashimoto's thyroiditis and fibromyalgia, which is not, is, you know, when we think about Hashis, this is sort of a classic AI autoimmune condition, but they're starting to look at things like fibromyalgia, depression as sort of subclasses of autoimmunity as well. So she's kind of got two going on there. The overriding principle for anybody with Hashis, like the class, you know, the multiple sclerosis, the lupus, the shorgins, the all of that. You want to stimulate, not annihilate. Okay. And this is the hardest for our autoimmune ladies because, and we'll just jump to the trauma conversation right away. A lot of the residue that we, the reason why our body in some case, not all cases, but in many cases, at least my clinical experience with working with a lot of these women is that their immune system has become dysregulated and is sort of turned against them, essentially. That's what's happening in an autoimmune process. But part of the reason for that is unresolved trauma. So that can be any type, big T trauma, it can be sexual abuse, physical abuse, all of the things that you might find on an adverse childhood experiences, like an ACE questionnaire, but it can also be smaller T trauma, right? The death of a dog or moving a lot or being bullied in school, like things like that, that sort of still live in the nervous system. And so when we pair the nervous system, we have this psycho neuroimmune endocrine kind of conglomerate that all works together. When you are stuck in this sort of fight or flight from things from your past, you tend to at least, and I can say, you know, I know my A score is a five, which is very high, which also puts me at a higher risk for things like autoimmunity. So I'm always looking at my thyroglobulin antibody. I'm always looking at some of those things um, on my blood work. So I know that I have a higher 
propensity for that. But a lot of women who have experienced trauma in their earlier years, typically they become hyper-independent, right? Very self-sufficient. Like I'm an island. I'm going to do everything myself. Nobody's going to help me because anytime I ask for help, I'm disappointed. Like that's at least that was my story for a long time. And so when you get to the gym, it can be very difficult to know what gentle is. <laughs> and so I, all that, to, I'm giving you kind of some of my backstory here as a demonstratively to tell you that it might be harder for you to know when you've reached your limit because that internal GPS system about when you're about to burn out or when you've done too much might be gone awry because you are so fiercely independent. So I just want to say we want to stimulate, not annihilate. So what does that mean in practice? Typically for my Hashi's patients or anyone who's dealing with any type of autoimmune condition, I want you to be thinking about in the gym, just to give you something tangible, like when we think of RPEs or rate of perceived exertion, it should be something like a five or a six for you, because that is going to be enough of a stimulus to get the muscles working, releasing the myokines, driving hypertrophy, but it's gentle enough that you're not annihilating the immune system because your immune system is sensitive, right? It's exquisitely sensitive to external and internal stimuli. So we want to be thinking about five or six out of 10 as a general kind of guideline. So that's good. That might be different for everybody, but when you're doing even one set, if you say, okay, I'm going to try to go for 10 reps, let's say, at the end of the 10 reps, it should be like, okay, that was about a five out of 10, six out of 10 maximum. And that's going to help with you not feeling bagged for several days. The other thing I will say for my autoimmune men and women, but primarily women, it affects women much more than it does men, is your recovery practices are also of the extreme utmost importance. So dialing in sleep, assuming you don't have a 20-month-old baby, <laughs> like, like our earlier question, be, being very strict about sleep, cold plunges, cold showers, saunas or hot showers, making sure you're taking enough time off in between gym sessions. So if you, let's say you do something on Monday, maybe the next time you go back is like Wednesday, you know, you're not going every single day and you're not annihilating one body part. I would probably say for an autoimmune protocol, like you probably want to do full body every time. Like you don't want to break up your workouts into like just legs. So you're just annihilating the legs and then you can't walk. Like it would be just like a flush throughout the entire body. And that would apply for everyone who's dealing with any So this could be this, I know this woman has FM and Hashi's, but anyone who's dealing with an autoimmune condition, like five to six out of 10 should be the intensity. And then like becoming a master at recovery. I think those are all so important. And I would I would tag in there that if you are stable on your autoimmune protocol, like let's say you're being treated for Hashimoto's, your antibodies are coming down, you feel good, you're sleeping well, that's when you go to the gym and you push yourself to that perceived exertion that Stephanie was referring to. And afterwards, you don't feel like you need to take a nap. Like that is the check-in point with yourself. If you're Thyroid antibodies have suddenly gone through the roof. You're really tired. You don't feel good. You know, we talk about this role of hormesis, this beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. That's a time that you'd be better off going to take a walk. So as someone yeah. who does actually have Hashimoto's, which thankfully is in remission, my tell is I know I've worked out too hard when I need to take a nap afterwards. I, I you know, you try to go to the point where you know you're pushing yourself 
but not so hard. And it doesn't mean I'm not pushing myself. It just means for me, because of my autoimmune history, because of my ACE scores, because of my trauma history, I know like where that fine line is. And I can tell when I overdo it, usually my tell is I'm really tired. It's like, okay, I overdid it. Now I have to do five extra things to help quiet my autonomic nervous system, to reassure my body. Okay, next time, maybe I don't need to do box jumps that are, you know, like the three foot tall box jumps. Maybe I need to do the one foot. Like, you know, I have a tendency to be very competitive and I'm sharing this with listeners so that they understand like we're all humans, but helping people understand there's that fine line. And I think for a lot of women, and this is something you and I were talking about in our DMs one day, there's that fine line between pushing yourself and then overdoing it and trying to find yeah. where that is for yourself, I think is very, very important. And you're going to play and you're there's going to be some times where you're totally going to overdo it. And there's going to be times when you get it just right. And again, that flexibility of thinking around, okay, I have to figure out what's right for me every time I'm in the gym, I think is that's one of the things I love about weight training in some respect is that it forces you to learn about yourself because I can, we can all talk about squats right? But we're all going to squat slightly differently. Our femur legs are slightly differently. We have a pelvic tilt that's going to be different, a lumbar lordosis that's going to be... Sl- so there's all these differences between us, these bio-individual nuances that make our approach to the exercise different. And so it's okay to play and it's okay to miss the target sometimes. Like sometimes you're going to overdo it and you're just going to forgive yourself and you're going to say, okay, what can I learn? And the next time that you go to the gym, you're going to say, okay, those box jumps really did me in last time. I'm just, I'm not going to do them. Or I'm going to do the one, you know, the lower level instead of the 30 inches, I'm going to do the, you know, whatever it is, the 12 inch jumps or whatever. So I think that's a point well taken. It's something that I, it actually took me a long time to learn even without an autoimmune condition, because I tend to be a very driven, very competitive, as you said, tend to be self-sufficient as well. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll do it myself. Like no one's going to do it as well as I am. And so for years I would have, you know, I would call it my internal GPS, like these internal antennas just didn't, I just, they just didn't work. Like I just couldn't tell when I was tired. I couldn't tell when I was pushing myself too hard. And then I would just collapse and (laughs) I would just be on the couch for a day or two. And I'm like, how did I get here? Why didn't I see the signs? And of course, ret- you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You're like, oh yeah, when I was, you know, getting those headaches and I was still punching out my work when I should have been stepping away from the computer, you know, maybe that was a sign. So all that to say is that individuals with autoimmunity, we tend to be uh, very driven individuals. So we don't know what our line is. So part of the healing process is actually learning where our limits are, finite matter, like our finite matter, uh, the limits of our finite matter, and, you know, and our mental capacity and our mental faculties as well. Oh, so important. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification 
and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators the mitochondria new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at timeline.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com dot com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. Next question. I started weight training thanks to you both, but hunger in my luteal phase is now insane. <laughs> so eat girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's actually really exciting. Whenever you are starting to get hungrier, it's usually a sign that you're metabolism is kicking up into a higher gear. So don't, again, just kind of what we were saying with our autoimmune girl, don't ignore those signs, like listen to your body, feed your body. You're typically hungrier in the luteal phase anyway, because it is a metabolically active time. We're growing the endometrial lining, prepping it for shedding. If it's, you know, if you're not going to be pregnant, uh, you're not going to become pregnant. So I would say increase your calories. Uh, You know, general rule of thumb is like up it by about 10%. So if you're someone who's having, I don't know, 1800 calories, let's say, like maybe you're going to up it by 180 to 200 calories. And that should be sufficient, you know, hope making sure that it's higher protein so that you're, you know, you're satiating that hunger because protein is very satiating. I like to, you know, probably I tend to like to pair protein with fat because I find those two together are very, at least from my palate and my body, very satiating. I really like like the eggs and the avocado, that kind of combination. So I would definitely be increasing protein. 
and celebrate that your metabolism is increasing. That's awesome. That's what happens when you have more muscle, by the way, is your muscles are metabolically active and it will by necessity uh, drive up your metabolism. You will become hungrier. I remember when I was doing, I can't remember what I had started doing like a new leg routine. And I don't remember if it was just a volume increase or maybe it was a weight increase, but I was starving for, to, I couldn't get enough food in like the next day. I could not eat enough. And it was just like, I just followed those cues because my legs were healing, right? My legs were needing the, that substrate in order to grow, to adapt to the stimulus that I had just, you know, given them the day before. So I would just say, listen to your body, celebrate that you're hungrier. It means that your metabolism is increasing and don't ignore those signs and have some more protein. Yeah, all such good points. I would say the one thing to add in there, and I don't know if this young woman is fasting, but mm. I typically will say, as you're getting towards when menstruation will start, those five to seven days preceding menstruation, which is part of the luteal phase, mm. that's the time to back off on fasting. So if you are lifting heavy and fasting and starving, to Stephanie's point, eat. Number two, sometimes you need a little bit more discretionary carbohydrate, not a lot. It might be that mm. you need half a cup of sweet potato, or maybe you need some low glycemic berries, but don't be afraid to adjust your macros accordingly. I always found that for me, I needed a little bit more carbohydrate because I, at that point, when I was still in my early forties and lifting what I thought to be heavy at that time, now I know better. But I would sometimes find that that week I would be really hungry and I would remind yeah. myself that, okay, my body is giving me these cues. It needs a little bit more of certain macronutrients. So protein without question, maybe a little bit more carbohydrate and definitely avoid fasting. Like 12 hours of digestive rest is certainly fine, but that's not the time to be doing long fasts, 16, 18, 20 hours. That's usually the time that I will encourage women to take a little bit of a break and have a little bit more rest in between their feeding schedules. Beautifully said. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, the carbs is that point is actually well taken in the luteal phase. I would completely mm -hmm. agree with that. We need more carbs, like yeah. we just and it's not something to be afraid of. Yeah, no, good point. unfortunately, it's they've been demonized. Okay, favorite pre workout. This is from anonymous favorite pre workout. I'm going to say coffee. I love coffee. Um, I have been changing. A I used to work out fasted. I used to always, because of the time of the day, like I'm usually in the gym quite early in the morning and I had this aversion to eating. I have been trying lately some protein and oatmeal. So I'll have, when I wake up, I'll just have some protein. I'll actually have oatmeal and I'll put a scoop of protein powder in it and with my coffee. And I have been finding if I can eat and then I'm in the gym about 45 minutes later, that's the time where you like, that's about the amount of time that it, my body's processing the oatmeal and the protein powder. It's starting to spill out into the blood. I'm finding that my performance is actually much better. I was doing it on the weekends for a while. And then I was like, let me try it during the week as well. So I'm loving right now eating prior to my lifts. My cardio, I'll still do fasted just because if I'm running, it's just like, my, I feel like my stomach is like yeah, glug, glug, jostled. glug, you know, like it's jostling while I'm doing the workout. But the weight training, I like some protein and carbs before. And then after I eat as well, I'll have like my breakfast when I get home, but shot of coffee, you know, primes the dopamine receptors for dopaminergic activity, like lifting. So you're sort of waking up the brain, waking up the motor cortex, you're getting all these mood altering effects with the dopamine and stuff. And I've been eating a little bit. So I've, I've been really, you know, the oatmeal and the protein is probably like 200, maybe 250 calories. So it's not like 
extreme, but it's enough of a enough substrate by the time I'm at the gym, I'm warmed up and I'm ready to lift that I have a little bit more kind of, you know, precursors for energy that I can really get a better performance in the gym. So that's mm-hmm. my, the thing I've been changing recently. Yeah. I love that you have a degree of experimentation because I think that's so important. Sometimes we get so rigid about what works for us that we're unwilling to change things. I haven't actually, I definitely can't do it before cardio, but I haven't actually experimented with eating before going to the gym because I feel like for me, we're in a new city and I don't love the gym we go to. And it's such an effort to put my butt in the car to drive to said gym that I'm like Mm -hmm. anything that delays me getting in the car, I will make an excuse. And I'm just sharing this just to be completely forthright. I love the gym where we lived before. Now it's a little bit more effort, but I sometimes I'm not a coffee drinker and I wish I was, but I will sometimes drink green tea. My kids are always talking to me about pre-workouts because they hang out with the gym bros and the gym bros give them all the things. And then I have to explain to them, well, actually that aspartame and the sucralose and all that junk that's in a lot of the pre-workouts, you probably yeah. might want to avoid. I know that Redmond's had sent me a pre-workout powder that had beta alanine in it, but it mm. made my skin itch. Oh, and so I was like, okay, that experiment of the N of one did not end mm-hmm. well, but I do know many people that will use Redmond's pre-workout and do fine with it. So hmm. I just add that as a That was my end of one experiment. Okay. I want to make sure that we're mindful of your time. What is your favorite supplement for middle-aged women? I need some sleep support. I know that maintaining muscle is something you both discuss and speak about frequently. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. I would say for muscle, we've been talking a little bit about protein powder. So whey, I'm a big fan of whey protein powder. So that if you consider that a supplement, I would consider it a food, but we'll just, you know, because you don't, it's a supplement, it comes in a tub usually. So whey protein is something that I use creatine again, just with, you know, in the lens of muscle, I would say five grams daily. I typically take it after my workout. Uh, You could take it before too. I don't think there's a big difference, but that's just my, just the rhythm of my morning is I I'll take it afterwards. So five grams, I would say in terms of other supplements that are important for women, midlife, let's say perimenopause, and I'll wrap in menopause in here as well. I would say omega-3s are super important for brain health and for reducing inflammation. So something like one to three grams of omega-3s daily. And if you have a supplement where you can rack up about a gram of DHA, so omega-3s are sort of two main, there's like the EPA, as you know, and the DHA. The DHA is specific to brain health. So I would say for women who are experiencing like brain fog, general malaise, even like joint aches and pains, one to three grams of omega-3s. I typically take like around three grams daily and one gram of that is DHA. Let me think what else. Vitamin D would be another big one. Uh, At least 4,000, like depending on where you live and how much sun exposure, natural sun exposure you have, like I live... Uh, on the East Coast. So we have all four seasons. We're, you know, at the time of this recording, we're sort of, you know, late fall, you know, moving into winter. So my supplementation for vitamin D tends to go up in the winter time when there's less available light. So it's like 4,000 IUs, I would say at a minimum. And then for me in the winter time, I tend to up it a little bit. So I'm like 5,000, 6,000 uh, international units of vitamin D. And then the other one I would say is magnesium big one, right? The big favorite for women is like magnesium. I typically take it in the evening. I'll take a combination of glycinate, which is very 
you know, highly absorbable, very well uh, tolerated by most people. And then I'll also take an L3 and 8, uh, which is the magnesium type that will cross the blood brain barrier. Perimenopausal women, you probably find this, Cynthia, that one of the biggest complaints is sleep. All of a sudden we can't sleep well or awake. We can't maintain it. We can't initiate it. So magnesium, I like glucinate and L3 and 8 uh, for that reason. And I would say if you're still cycling, like you're still a menstruating woman, uh, you can cycle the magnesium. Like I typically will have about 400 migs, like 400 milligrams sort of as a baseline. And then in that luteal phase, I typically amp it up again, because we're more metabolically active in that time or developing the endometrial lining. I typically will up it 600, maybe some cases even like as high as a gram. Like I'll take some, you know, if I'm particularly stressed, uh, or particularly overworked, I know that I can go up to about a gram of magnesium without any of that, you know, the digestive upset that like I sort of can, like a gram is about my upper tolerable limit for magnesium. So, and you can play with this again, you'll, everybody's a little bit different. The way that you know that you're overdoing it is you're going to start to see loose stools, maybe some cramping, that kind of thing. Any other big hitters? I think those are my, that's my list. I would say that those are the so, like I typically am a supplement minimalist. I don't like taking like gobs and gobs and gobs of supplements, but really good omega-3 for brain health as we age, as we're moving through perimenopause as well. I think that's super important. The vitamin D, it's a pro-hormone. It's not really a vitamin. It's like a pro-hormone, magnesium, creatine, whey powder. I think those are all great. I would say the thing about creatine that I've learned, it can be helpful for metabolic health, muscle health, but there's also this sleep architecture piece, you know, you need more of it to cross the blood brain barrier. But I've been experimenting quite a bit with the sleep piece. And that has been helpful. I would say the only thing I might add is inositol, because I think mm, I've been very transparent with my listeners and said that completely mm -hmm. changed the game with my sleep. And depending on how much stress I have, whether I'm jet lagged, I will increase or decrease. I could have one gram or three grams of inositol and it's super easy, really well tolerated and helps with insulin sensitivity. Okay. A couple other things that I want to make sure we touch on hormesis. So we've kind of touched on some of these things, cold exposure, cryotherapy, infrared sauna, HIT, fasting. What are some of your kind of prevailing wisdom around hormetic stress and middle-aged women? I'm going to just pick on middle-aged women because we tend to be a little less stress tolerant at this stage in our lives. Because mm -hmm. I, I think I recall Sarah Gottfried saying on the podcast that, you know, you can have some genetic susceptibilities to maybe you don't need to do ice baths. I swear I'm one of these people. I think we were having a conversation in your DMs. And I was <laughs> like, I'm so impressed with your plunge pool. I think I'm just going to do cryotherapy. But yeah. how do we know where where the happy places like how much exposure do we need to get the hormetic benefits? You know, I think it's hard to quantify person to person. Again, it's like this individual, you have to play a little bit. So for me, you know, my background is, you know, Mediterranean. So I have, you know, parents from, uh, my father's from Portugal. My mother's family is from the Middle East. So we are like warm blooded. We love heat, right? So the cold is, and then of course I live on the East coast, right? So you take that genetic archetype, which is used to the warmth. You put her in a, an environment where there's a very long drawn out winter and it can be painful. I think for me with the, I'm, I'll wrap in the cold plunge here because the, it was very, I was reticent to do cold. I was like, I'll do sauna all day long. I'll do sauna every day. You know, I'll do, I can do the warm, but the cold was 
something that I was avoiding. And it's one of those things where you're like, okay, why am I avoiding this? Is there some benefit that I, you know, is that where the work actually lies? So I am somebody who, like you, and I think this is why we get along so well, is like, I value (laughs) excellence, right? Mm -hmm. I want to be self-actualized and I want to be working towards expressing all of who I am. So I was like, all right, the cold plunge seems really difficult and it seems really awful. So I'm just going to try it to see how I like it. And when I first started doing it, I was only able to really tolerate like a 16 degrees Celsius. That's probably like 57, maybe 58 degrees Fahrenheit. And I've worked to 13 degrees Celsius, like 54-ish, 55-ish Fahrenheit. I've been in colder pools, but it has been like my cold tolerance isn't there yet. Like if you look at Dr., you know, if you look at Susanna Sodberg, she's plunging in, I think she's in Sweden and she's in like two degrees Celsius water, which is like 30, maybe 40 Fahrenheit. It's, It's insane. But her cold tolerance, like she's worked up to it, like she's built up a cold muscle, like she's built up her sort of her tolerance to the cold. So in the same way that, you know, if I were to do, let's say, I don't know, bicep curls and I pick up a pair of 25s and someone says, oh my God, that's impossible. I could never do that. Like I, I can only pick up fives right now. It's like, okay. And with time and, you know, with exercising that muscle, you'll be able to amplify and you'll be able to jump from fives to sevens to tens. So I, I would say, often the work that you're repelled by or repulsed by is probably the work that you need to lean into. At least I found that for myself. And with cold plunge, I should also say it's like only like the science only like in order to get some of the best, it's like 11 minutes a week. It's not like you should be staying in there for hours on end. It's like a really short stint and then you're out. The cold plunge for me is grit and it's mental resilience because I don't want to get into the cold plunge. I want to be warm and comfortable in my bed. But then I wake up and I go and do the cold plunge and I do something uncomfortable first thing in the morning. So everything else in my day is easier. (laughs) You know, even the weights that come after the cold plunge, everything else in my day is easier because I've already overcome this sort of monkey in my mind that's like, don't do it. You're not supposed to be cold. You want to stay warm, you know? So it's just a little stressor there. I think it's actually great for women with autoimmunity as well because it's cold, right? So like quells the inflammation or that pro-inflammatory state that can be, that we can see with uh, women with autoimmunity. And it's just a little stimulus. It's just a little like two to three minute stint. Same thing with sauna, same thing with weight. It's like the whole theme is stimulate, don't annihilate. Like you don't want to stay for an hour in the cold plunge. You don't want to stay for an hour in the sauna. You don't want to overdo it at the gym. You want to be able to stimulate the body enough so that you are getting an adaptive response. And I know this question will come up. You want to do cryo before lifting, not the opposite. Because I think one of the things I read was there's a four hour window after lifting that if you get into a cold plunge or cryotherapy, you can interrupt the muscle protein synthesis process. At least that was what I took. Yeah, it's the pro and it's the inflammatory. So exercises, it's a eustress, but it's a stress, right? So you have this pro-inflammatory response that happens after you tear up the muscle, right? But if you cool that down, like you actually want the muscle to be a little hot, right? So after the training. So if you are going to cold plunge and you're also training, you the order would be cold plunge first and then train. Or if that's not possible for you, at least put, as you said, put that four hour buffer in. So you train, let's say in the morning or whatever time it is. And then you wait at least four hours before cold plunging. 
typically cold in the morning, it wakes you up, right? So it's, you're going to have this shock response because you're get like, and I'll tell you very honestly, when I first started, like every single cell in my body was like, get the hell out of this tub, get out, get out right now. Right. So it is very, it's like an alarm. It's like a shock response. So there's a lot of cortisol. There's a lot of the catecholamines, the epinephrine, the adrenaline, which then drives like dopamine. And so it's nice to do it in the morning because that's actually when your cortisol is supposed to be high. If you do it too late in the evening, it can sort of be a little bit, I find a little bit too stimulating. So I don't like to do cold in the evening. So if you work out in the morning, maybe like a noon or like mid-afternoon plunge might be fine. And then heat, of course, is really nice in the evening for those of us that are trying to augment our sleep because what will happen is this rebound, right? Where you are going to overheat the body essentially in the sauna. And then your body is going to work really hard to reduce your core body temperature once you get out of there, right? So that's also going to help you fall asleep and stay asleep. So the general rule of thumb is cold in the morning, and that can be in your shower. You don't need to have a cold plunge. Although if you do have a cold plunge, I highly recommend getting one with a chiller. So you don't have to constantly throw ice. And I was, I was like going to the gas station, like, you know, a couple of <laughs> times a week, getting like these huge things of ice. And I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to get a cold plunge with a chiller. So I would say cold in the morning, heat in the evening. And then you just, you get, it's the same with the sauna as well. Like there's some people who can, and we all know this, like you get in, you know, my mother could take a bath that she could sit in a bath. And if I put my hand in it, like it would be scalding, right? So we all have sort of these like different nociceptive and like inputs in terms of like our tolerance to heat and tolerance to cold, which can be worked, right? Which can be improved the more we do them. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more that more often than not, the things we try to avoid doing are the things that we need to do. Well, as always, an amazing conversation. There are a lot of questions that we didn't get to, but please be reassured if you asked a question we didn't get to, we'll save it for the next conversation. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to listen to your amazing podcast, et cetera. Oh, thank you so much. So Cynthia and I are fellow uh, podcasters, and we're going to release this together. So this will be on my show and on hers at the same time. My podcast is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. So very similar to Cynthia insofar as I like to speak to world leaders, and, uh, you know, scientists and doctors and people who are changing the game and changing the way that we think about what it means to have a well-lived life. So Better with Dr. Stephanie, we have weekly episodes there. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I try to be active on Instagram. So you'll see me posting a lot of workout things. And, you know, whenever there's a really interesting clip from the podcast, I'll be there. Uh, I'll post that there as well. And I'll post like educational content. So it's at Dr. Stephanie Estima. So doctor, first name, last name. Uh, and then if you want to watch the show, uh, we're on YouTube as well. So you could just look up Dr. Stephanie Estima and there's my channel there as well. And then the last one is the book. So starting to get ready to, I'm thinking about writing another book, but my current book, my baby is called The Betty Body. So it's about cyclical living, how to alter food and training and sleep and all these things in accordance with a woman's menstrual cycle. So that's called The Betty Body. And you can find that, you know, any good bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the places. A great book. Thank you again. Thank you, my friend. It's always great to spend time with you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.